Please turn in your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. If you're using the Black Bibles, that can be found on page 819. Matthew 13, 44, page 819. We're in the midst of a section here in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is speaking to the crowds in parables. These parables are about the kingdom of God, about God's redemptive rule over his people. And as I've said uh, before recently, the the promised kingdom of God was much anticipated in Jesus' day. And what we're seeing now in Matthew is that with the coming of Jesus, this promised kingdom has come. In other words, the promised kingdom is here. Why? Because the promised king is here. Jesus is the king and he is bringing in the kingdom of God. And so this is good news. This is the good news that John the Baptist was proclaiming. This is the good news that Jesus has been proclaiming. It's what the apostles will proclaim. The good news that the kingdom of God is here. It meant that God had come to save and rule over his people like never before. And not only was it good news, but the arrival of the kingdom of God was profound news. And what I mean by that is it was news that demanded a response. And that response needed to be turn from your sin and embrace Jesus as your king. Right? He, he's saying the, God's promised king is here. Now turn to him, submit to him, enter into his kingdom. Trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins and enter into God's everlasting kingdom of peace and righteousness and joy and glory. So it's good news, and it's good news that should bring response. And now here in verses 44 and following, Jesus gives the crowd three more parables on the kingdom of God. We've already studied several, and here we're going to look at three more. And remember the nature of parables. For those who had ears to hear, these parables should actually highlight the value of the kingdom of God. They they should teach the commitment that's required to enter the kingdom of God. They They should bring more understanding for those who had ears to hear. But for those who don't have a responsive heart to Jesus, then these parables are actually going to further harden them in their unbelief. So our text today is Matthew 13, verses 44 through 53, and I would ask the congregation to stand, please, for the reading of God's word. Please follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read verses 44 through 53 now. This is Jesus teaching, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field where a man, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, 
Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And then verse 53 is really kind of a transition verse. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. What is your most valuable possession in life? Just think about that for a second. What is your most valuable possession in life? And what are you willing to give up for it? These first two parables highlight the value of the kingdom of God. Again, verse 44 The kingdom of heaven, that's Matthew's way of saying kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Before the days of of banks and safety deposit boxes, right, people would bury treasure in their fields. And so the picture here is of a man who finds treasure hidden in a field. And clearly it's not his field. Perhaps this man was just passing through or really more likely he was a hired hand who was working in the field when he found this hidden treasure. And presumably the, the current owner doesn't know about that treasure. It must have been from a previous owner who had buried it. And, and so um, now the worker who discovered the treasure, what does he do? Well, he leaves it buried and he goes out and he sells all that he has so that he can buy that field, thus securing the treasure. And you say, well, that was kind of shrewd, wasn't it? (laughs) Right? It was. But in this parable, Jesus is not really dealing with the ethics of what this man did. The point of the parable is the value of the treasure and what he was willing to give up for it. Okay? This treasure is so valuable that the man was willing to sacrifice all that he had to acquire that treasure. And once he does, he is happy, right? He He is joyful. He didn't do this begrudgingly. The treasure, he goes away in joy, right? Because the treasure was far more valuable than anything that he had to give up. Okay? The same point is made in the next parable here in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Pearls in that day were... Very valuable, right? Because they didn't have fake pearls. These are the real thing, right? And so this guy is actually looking for pearls. And in his search, he finds one particular pearl of great value, Jesus says. And what does he do when he, once he finds it? Well, just like the last man, he sells all that he has in order to buy that pearl. So once again, we have the, the same theme. The, the treasure is so valuable that it's worth giving up all that you have in order to acquire it. And again, obviously, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, right? Both of these parables highlight the value of the kingdom of God. The value of God's kingdom is so great that it's worth sacrificing all to secure it. And so the title of the message today is The Value of Christ and His Kingdom. 
And I want to organize our time around two headings. You'll see those in, in the notes section of the bulletin. Recognize the value and respond to the value. That's my direction I'm going to take us today, okay? First, we want to spend time just recognizing the value of Christ and his kingdom. And then we want to talk about how should we respond then to the value of Christ and his kingdom. So let's begin with number one, recognize the value of Christ and his kingdom. I want you to consider with me just some different aspects or components or whatever word you want to say about Christ and his kingdom. And this is where, like I was praying earlier, I really pray that God will give us the eyes of faith to, to, to see what we know is true, what the scripture teaches us. And the picture I have is of like I have a, a person will hold up a fine jewel and kind of just stare at it and adore it and look at it and just see the different um, characteristics of it, right? The way it shines as, it, as he tilts it around. That's what I want to do. I want to hold up the value of Christ and his kingdom. And I want us to just admire it for a while. So I want to specifically give four examples of the value of Christ and his kingdom. Number one, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. Embracing Christ by faith, entering into his kingdom, results in the forgiveness of all of your sins. That's what the Bible teaches. Right? To be in the kingdom of God means your sins have been forgiven. In Acts 10, 43, the apostle Peter, preaching about Christ, says... To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then in Colossians 1.14 it says of Christ, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What a value that is. We are the, the, we're guilty. We're the lawbreakers. We are sinners by nature and by practice. We're idolaters. But God graciously grants total forgiveness to all who forsake their sin and by faith embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. Total forgiveness. All our sins from the past, the sins that we're committing right now, and even the sins that we'll still unfortunately commit in the future. They're all forgiven. They're all paid for. They're all wiped away. We will never face punishment for those sins. This is total forgiveness from the very one to whom we sinned against. This is full pardon from the final judge. The one we'll stand before. We've already been pardoned. This is guaranteed acceptance into heaven when we die. This is eternal life with God in glory. This is escape from eternal punishment. That's what it means to have your sins forgiven. It's escape from eternal punishment, from a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And our passage points us to that today. Look at verse 47 with me, this third parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing 
of teeth. So th- this parable describes uh, what was called a, a dragnet, right? This big net that was uh, attached to two boats and they would just kind of sweep through and, and scoop up all that they could in the net, right? That's how they did their fishing. And then so once they did that and got to shore or wherever, maybe in the boat, I don't know, fishermen would have to separate everything it caught, right? They'd have to separate the good fish. Okay, well, this is clean by Jewish law. This will sell in the marketplace. Let's separate that so we can sell it. They'd have to separate the good fish from the the bad fish, from the stuff that couldn't be sold, couldn't be eaten, right? That's the picture. But what is Jesus pointing to? Well, this net is not evangelism, okay? I know that Jesus, when he called the disciples who who were fishermen, he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men, and so that is one picture the Bible gives, but that's not what this is talking about. The net is not evangelism. Rather, this is a picture of the in-gathering at the end of the age. This is a picture of what happens when Christ returns, right? And we all stand before him. Really, this parable is similar to what we saw last time with the parable of the wheat and the weeds, Remember that one? Although here the emphasis is not so much that believers live right alongside unbelievers like that one was talking about. Rather, this parable focuses on the separation that happens when Christ returns. So, like, you know, the good fish are compared to the righteous, right? They're the ones who, by God's grace, they're united to Christ in faith. The good fish are going to be separated from the evil. The righteous are going to be separated from the evil. Those who have rejected Christ, those who have not turned from their sins, have not trusted in him, have not bowed their knee to him. The righteous will be separated from the evil. And then the parable hones in on what's going to happen to the evil. We know the Bible teaches the righteous will be with Christ forever in glory. But the parable points us to the fate of those without Christ. You see it? says they are thrown into the fiery furnace. They are thrown into the fires of hell, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the reality, that all those who have not trusted in Christ, if you die that way or if Christ would return and you're still without Christ, you will be separated from him forever in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal punishment. Because that's what all, we all deserve because of our sin. That's what our sin deserves. But God graciously grants forgiveness to all who, who come to him. To all who will enter into his kingdom. To all who will acknowledge, yes, Jesus, you are king. You are the savior. I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I need your mercy. Everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is saved from this fate. But all those who do not accept Christ, this this is the destiny that awaits them. And so, again, the sobering truth that all humanity will be divided into these two camps. But that shows us, it reminds us the value of God's grace, the value of Christ and his kingdom, what he has saved us from. Again, this is the fate we all deserve. But Christ's suffering and death in our place 
paid for our sins. He rescued us from this wrath. That's what it says in 1 Thessalonians. Um, waiting for the, Lord, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ who rescues us from the wrath to come. This forgiveness is something that we ourselves could never have earned or secured. But it's something that's been given to us. And so again, since, since we're talking about this theme of value, let me ask you a question. What price would you put on the forgiveness of sins? <laughs> How valuable is the forgiveness of sins? How valuable is rescue from eternal wrath? I mean, it's priceless, isn't it? You can't put a, a, a figure on that. Jesus said in Mark 8.35, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? See what Jesus is saying? He's saying, your soul is more valuable than all that the world can offer. And so those of us who, by God's grace, have been found by Christ, right? We're in God's kingdom. We have forgiveness of sins. We've been rescued. And that is a a price that is beyond compare. Nothing is more valuable than your eternal soul. Nothing is more valuable than eternal life with God. Okay, so that's one as we're trying to admire and recognize the value of Christ in his kingdom. That's one aspect of it. Another one, deliverance from the ruling power of sin. Right? When, when we're brought into the kingdom of God, it, the Bible teaches that means we're delivered from the ruling power of sin. Christ and his kingdom brings redemption. Christ and his kingdom brings deliverance. Colossians 1.13 says of Christ... He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Again, the Bible teaches we are by nature enslaved to sin. We're trapped in that domain of darkness, in Satan's domain of darkness. So by nature, we are in bondage to a master who we could never satisfy we're serving a ruler who is leading us down a path of pain and eternal destruction. And we're hopelessly trapped there. But God in his grace and mercy and power has rescued us through Jesus Christ. By Christ's death and resurrection, Jesus defeated sin and death and Satan. He's bound the strong man. Now he's plundering his house. He's rescuing captives like you and me from Satan's domain. And so when our time came, Christ broke our bonds to sin and threw open the prison doors, right? When you think about your testimony, you think about uh, when God opened your eyes and you believed, think about what happened there. Your, your, your bonds, your, your, your chains to sin were broken. The prison that you were in, it was thrust open. And now you're free. Now you've been delivered. Christ came and rescued us and carried us out of Satan's dungeon and placed us secure in his eternal kingdom. 
And so now we can flee temptation. Now we can resist the devil. Now we can obey God and bring glory to him. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us new hearts. We can bless others and point them to Jesus. Now we can worship God and enjoy him forever. Brandon read earlier Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So there it is again, redemption. That's deliverance. That's, that's someone else paying the price to set us free. And Ephesians says, talks, when it uh, describes that, it, it says, he lavished on us the riches of his grace. That's how valuable it is. You know, back in the day of, of their day where, where you had people who were bond servants and things, maybe some of them could, could work hard enough and skimp by and save up enough money to free themselves. But none of us could ever do that. None of us could ever pay for our own freedom. But Christ has provided it and he's given it to us freely. How valuable is freedom? Let me ask you. How valuable is freedom from slavery to sin? How valuable is it to be no longer in this domain of darkness, no longer under an evil ruler, but rather to be in a kingdom of righteousness? To have Christ as your king, a perfect and and holy and powerful sovereign. How valuable is that? These are precious, precious gifts. Redemption, forgiveness of sins. Thirdly, as we continue to recognize the value of Christ and his kingdom, the third characteristic, I've already kind of mentioned it, membership in Christ's everlasting kingdom of life, peace, and righteousness. Again, we've just seen it. We know what it's like to live in Satan's domain of darkness. Some of us can remember what that's like. Even now that we've been delivered from that, we know what it's like to live in a fallen world where there's evil and suffering and death all around us. But Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of joy and peace and righteousness. Jesus is a righteous king and his kingdom will last forever. Isaiah 9.6 speaks of Christ's kingdom. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the Lord of the hosts, excuse me, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, yes, this was the long-awaited kingdom of God, but now that it has come through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this kingdom is here to stay. Human kingdoms are evil, and they, they are temporary. But Christ's kingdom is perfect, it's righteous, and it's forever. Romans 14, 17 says, and again, he was in the middle of a context of dealing with, you know, should, should you eat food that's been sacrificed to idols or should you not? But he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
That's the kingdom, if you're a believer, that you've been brought into. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. How valuable is that? How valuable is it to live under the rule of a perfect and righteous king? How, how precious is it to live forever in a kingdom of joy and peace? What a treasure it is to know that we'll be raised from the dead in a glorified body with no sickness or pain. How valuable will it be, loved ones, to worship God with your brothers and sisters in Christ with no more remnants of sin in your heart, to be able to worship him with your whole heart, to be able to worship and enjoy each other in perfect love and unity. How valuable is that? How precious is that? That's what we've been given. Through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How valuable will it be to reign with Christ over a perfect, sinless new heaven and new earth? I mean, man, it would, be, it would be valuable just to be, you know, a janitor in God's kingdom, right? But the Bible says we're going to get to reign with him. One more example of the value of Christ and his kingdom that I want to share with you today. Certainly, it's not exhaustive. A peaceful and loving relationship with the triune God. I'm intentionally saying, you know, that, talking about the kingdom of God... Um, is like this and is like this. And I'm intentionally saying the value of Christ and his kingdom. Because it's not just that we get to be in his kingdom, although that is, is amazing. It's that we get a right relationship with God. With Father, Son, and Spirit. With the triune God. That's what we've been given. Now that Christ has paid for our sins, we are no longer enemies with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the ultimate value of the kingdom of God is God himself. Right? The ultimate value of your salvation is God. Eternal life and, and heaven and streets of gold, whatever you want to say, that's all just icing on the cake. The value of your salvation is God. Now we know that Almighty God is for us, that He loves us, that He will never leave us or forsake us. Because through Christ, our relationship with God that was broken, through Christ now it has been restored forever. We are not only members of Christ's kingdom, but the Bible says, amazingly, we are adopted into God's family. Now God the Father is our heavenly Father. Now God the Son is our loving King and Brother. Now God the Spirit lives inside of us. <laughs> now we have the privilege of knowing God, of worshiping Him, of relating to Him, of experiencing His loving presence, of resting in His faithful care, of trusting in His sovereign protection, of rejoicing in His mercy and grace, of worshiping Him in the splendor of His holiness. And so again, my, my first goal today is for us to recognize the value of Christ and his kingdom. That it's a supreme value. A, an incomparable value. Forgiveness from the penalty of sin. Deliverance from the ruling power of sin. Eternal life away from the presence of sin eventually. And best of all, an intimate relationship with God forever. 
Nothing is more valuable than that, than that. Right? I mean, all the riches of the world don't compare to the value of Christ and his kingdom. So having recognized its value, or his value, right? Now I call you to secondly respond to that value. Respond to that value. The incomparable value of Christ and his kingdom warrants a response. And from our text today, I want to give us three ways that we should respond. Number one, surrender everything to obtain it. Surrender everything to obtain it. This is what the the two men in those first two parables did, right? They joyfully sold all that they had. They gave up everything in order to secure the great treasure that was before them. And that's what Jesus requires for any who would enter his kingdom. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Who, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, I want to be clear here. Our entrance into the kingdom of God, our salvation, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All right, so when I'm talking about sacrificing and giving up and securing and all that, there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. I'm not talking about that, right? It is given to us freely. Christ has paid it all. It's given to us freely. But the Bible is clear, Jesus is clear, that becoming a Christian means you surrender everything to Christ. It means you recognize that Jesus is king. I mean, we're talking about kingdoms here, right? We're talking about being transferred from one kingdom, the domain of darkness, which really was a kingdom of self, right? Serving my sinful self, living for myself. You're transferred from that kingdom now into Christ's kingdom. And so there's got to be a transfer of allegiance here. It's not just, oh, I'm going to kind of add Christ to my life so I don't have to go to a place of eternal torment, but I'm going to keep living for myself. No, that's not salvation. That's not Becoming a Christian. And that's what these parables are pointing us to. That you you sacrifice everything. You surrender everything in joy. It's a good exchange to get the kingdom of God, to, to get Christ. Becoming a Christian means you surrender everything to Christ. He is king and you are to live for Christ and not yourself. You acknowledge that Jesus has authority over every area of your life. And by God's grace, you commit to following Jesus all the days of your life. We, we know we're not going to come close to perfection, right? We're going to stumble and fall daily. But we're saying, Lord, I want to live for you now. I forsake my sin. And I want to follow you in obedience. That's becoming a Christian. And so it's not just at the point of entry into God's kingdom that we're to surrender all, but Christ and his kingdom continue to warrant our priority commitment. That's something I want us to see from these parables. Being a Christian, this should remind us that Christ and his kingdom continues to deserve our complete surrender. Daily, by the Spirit, putting to death the flesh and seeking to love Christ. Bringing all our pursuits under his, his word, under his loving rule. Enduring hardship with the strength that God supplies. Being willing to suffer for the name of Christ. 
All of this is by God's grace. And, and yes, it does cost something, right? Jesus has been preparing his disciples for that, for the persecution. It's a great cost, as a matter of fact. But it's worth it. There's no doubt about it. It's not even close. It's worth it. It's worth the cost. The parable shows that when the man buys the field at such sacrifice, he now possesses something far more valuable than what he gave up, right? He, he scrounged together everything he could to buy that field, and he's happy. There's no doubters or, or buyer's remorse here, right? There's no doubt about it. He's joyful because this is far more valuable. It's worth it. The kingdom of God is worth infinitely more than the cost of discipleship. Christ is worth infinitely more than whatever it costs us to follow him. Paul said in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, he says. He was happy with that trade. To give up all, to follow Christ, to know Christ. The parable shows that when the man buys the field at such sacrifice, he now possesses something far more valuable than what he gave up. And so when you put all these parables together, you see there's an eternal treasure to be gained and there's an eternal punishment to be avoided. And so the kingdom of God is worth it. It's worth it for what you gain and it's also additionally worth it for what you escape what you avoid. So those who recognize the value of, the, of Christ will joyfully abandon everything else in order to secure that treasure. Are you recognizing the value of Christ today? Are there any of you who are still holding on to your own life and saying, no, I, I'm just going to live my life and the, let the chips fall where they may? And, uh, you know, I try to be a good person or I try to do right by people. And I'm not going to become one of those fanatics. I'm not going to do that. Oh, I pray you'll recognize the value of Christ today. May the Spirit work in your heart to show you the danger that you're in. But to show you the, the treasure that awaits you if you will turn to Christ. Second response to the value is to delight in possessing it, right? Again, the sacrifice, the cost, it's not done out of drudgery, but delight. Verse 45, the man in his joy goes and sells all that he has to acquire the treasure. The same joy is implied with the merchant there, the pearl guy. He's thrilled to obtain the pearl of great value. And so as Christians, we should be full of joy because we've been given the greatest treasure there is. We have Jesus Again, we have peace with God. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the promise of eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And so let us be filled with joy. And I'm not talking about a superficial fakeness. No, we know there's trials and hardships now. But that should not take away our joy. 
Will you turn with me, please, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1? I thought this was a good parallel passage. There's lots of good parallel passages. Philippians 3 is a good one, too. But let's look at 1 Peter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that's page 1014. Peter begins his letter with a, a doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, he's describing the treasure. That we have, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. We live in this fallen world and we still live in, we're groaning like creation, right? Living under the curse of sin, waiting for our final redemption and so we're grieved now with trials and I grieve with you guys through the trials you're facing but I pray that you'll be encouraged today I pray that you'll have joy as you think about the treasure that awaits you the treasure that you already have in your relationship with God and the promise the the sure hope of knowing that your sins are forgiven that you'll be with him forever May that encourage you. May that give you joy even in the midst of trials. May it give you strength to endure. And then Peter even gives us another reason to endure. These trials are for a purpose. Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold. (laughs) There's the value again, right? All kinds of value language in the Bible, isn't there? Your faith is more precious than gold. Why? Because that's what unites you to Christ. That's what led to, to this the treasure of Christ and his kingdom. And it's what's going to bring glory to God. Your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is glorified through you as you're enduring suffering and hardship. As you're trusting in him, as you're in a difficult relationship as you're battling a sickness, an ongoing sickness, and as you're clinging to Christ, God is glorified through you because you are showing that Jesus is more precious to you than comfort, than than anything this world can give. You're showing that your hope is in Christ. And God is glorified through that. Praise God. May, May you continue to do that. And I love the way the passage ends here, talking about Jesus, right? One day he'll be revealed. One day we will see him. Our our faith will become sight. But even now, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There's our precious treasure, Jesus. It's Jesus. And so as I thought about that, the reason, as believers, we're often not full of joy, right? The reason that we're, we, we don't have joy 
is because we lose sight of our treasure, right? Again, maybe worth looking at the, the silliness of the world. Maybe we're focused on our hardships. So keep admiring your treasure. Keep recognizing the value of what you have in Christ. We've been given the most precious gift there is, a peaceful and loving relationship with the triune God. And so may God help us to delight in him, to cultivate that relationship. Last response. Right, recognizing the value. We've talked about uh, surrendering all, following Christ. Uh, We've talked about rejoicing in it, in possessing it. And now the last thing that, this passage points us to is explain to others the value of it. In other words, tell other people about this treasure. And you say, well, where are you getting that? Obviously, it's biblical anyways, right? But it is in this passage, (laughs) verse 51. So we had three parables. Remember, Jesus tells the parables to the crowds as a whole. Sometimes he explains them specifically to the disciples later. But in verse 51, we actually have kind of what could be called a fourth parable. But this one is only given to the disciples. Verse 51, Jesus speaking now only to his disciples asked them a question. Have you understood all these things? All right, he's kind of come on the end of all these parables, giving them some explanation. Have you understood it? He says. Do you understand what I'm teaching? They say Yes. And so that's encouraging, right? You know, and, you know, maybe they thought they understood a little better than they really did. I don't, you know, but they, I'm sure they're answering honestly here. They, they, like verse 11 says, you know, that we considered previous weeks, they've been privileged to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. God has given them hearts eager to receive the word, and Jesus has personally explained some parables to them. So yes, the disciples are blessed, By God's grace, they are understanding that Jesus is the Messiah and he's bringing in the promised kingdom of God. So then, look at what Jesus says to them in verse 52. Here's the little parable, kind of. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. say, what is that about, right? I'll I'll try to explain it kind of quickly. Remember, Jesus is saying this to the crowds. Well, who are scribes? Well, scribes were the teachers of the law. They were the experts of the Old Testament law. But at this time, most of the scribes have rejected Jesus, right? They've not believed that he is the promised Messiah. They think he's blaspheming. They think he's a fake. They think Jesus is some kind of rebel against the Old Testament law. But what Jesus is saying is the disciples, by God's grace... Because they've been given hearts to believe, because they recognize Jesus as the Messiah, they're a new kind of scribe. God is raising up a new kind of scribe here, a scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven. By God's grace, the disciples see and believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. They, their eyes have been opened to see <clears throat> excuse me, that Jesus has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. And that's what he means when he says, you guys are like the master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The old stands for the promised things of the Old Testament there. 
But the new are the fulfilled things of Jesus and his ministry. And he's saying, you guys, are, you, you guys have the blessing of, of seeing that I am the promised Messiah, of seeing how all the Old Testament was pointing toward me, how I've come in fulfillment of it. The scribes, the Pharisees, all they understand is the old. And they don't really even understand that, right? Because it's pointing to me. But you guys, you can bring out old and new. And so, again, the picture here is of, think about it, how awesome it was when someone like the apostles, someone like, especially I think of the apostle Paul, who has been trained in the Old Testament scriptures, right? Grown up, doing all the festivals, doing all the sacrifices, learning it at school, learning all this Old Testament God's word. Think of how awesome it is when God in his grace opens their eyes and they see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. It's kind of like in Luke 24 when the risen Christ appears to, to, to the two disciples. They don't recognize him yet. And, and it says, in beginning with the Moses and the prophets, he explained that all things were pointing to him, right? It's like that. And he's saying, you guys are being trained that way. And again, they had a long way to go. And certainly the coming of the Holy Spirit and seeing Jesus die and rise again, that's all going to be a, uh, put a lot of pieces together for them, right? But you look at how the apostles preached, and that's exactly what they did. I mean, especially when they were talking to Jews, right? They started with the Old Testament, and they said, hey, look, da-da-da-da-da, this was promised, and guess what? Jesus fulfills that. Likewise, then, you and I, as Christians... We may not have grown up as Jews, but we do have the Old Testament scriptures, and we have the New Testament as well. Praise God. We have the complete word of God, and God has graciously opened our eyes to understand and believe that Jesus died and rose again in the place of sinners, that he is Savior and Lord, that he has brought in his eternal kingdom. Just listen to what I'm saying. You, I think a lot of us maybe get, feel like, oh, I don't know enough. I, I bet you do know quite a bit, actually, Right? That Jesus died and rose again in the place of sinners. That Jesus is Savior and Lord. That he has brought in his eternal kingdom. That he forgives and rescues all who come to him in faith. That he is reigning now from the Father's right hand and he's building his kingdom. That one day he's coming again to eliminate all evil and remake this world where he will rule forever with his people in glory. Those are truths that by God's grace you know. Those are realities. Those are a priceless treasure. A treasure that we've been blessed to to not only know, but possess, right? To be a part of. And so now let's tell other people about that treasure. Let's point other people to that treasure. I mean, isn't that the natural thing to do? When we discover something that's really cool or really precious, we tell others about it. And again, what could be more precious than Christ and his kingdom? May God be pleased to use us, to work through us, to point many people to Christ, that they too may experience him as their ultimate treasure. Let's pray. Again, Father, we stand in awe of you. We, we know that you are the one who found us. I know these parables talk about someone finding something, discovering something, but you, you initiated this. You came and 
we were dead in our sins. We were blindly following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and you made us alive. And, and you drew us to yourself in faith. And so we praise you and thank you. And we praise you for the treasure that is ours in Christ. Oh, forgive us when we take it for granted. Forgive, it, forgive us when we lose sight of how precious it is and complain about other things. We have been given so much. We have the, you've lavished on us the riches of your grace. And you tell us that you're going to continue to lavish your grace on us for all eternity. Thank you so much for that. And I pray that you would continue to show the riches of your grace today by drawing more people to yourself, even now. Open their eyes. Let them see the supreme value of Christ. May they give up their supposed control of their life. May they give up living for themselves to, to enter into his kingdom. Thank you for the privilege of being one of your children, of being one of being a part of your kingdom. We praise you that your kingdom is what will last forever. The things of this world are temporary, they're fleeting. So pl- please uh, give us open doors, give us love and courage and wisdom to point others to the value, to tell others, to train, to teach others that they too would know you. We ask all this to the praise of your name, for your glory. Amen. Let's stand together, please, and we'll sing another song of praise.